0: Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast. Today with a very special topic. Um, a couple of years ago, I came to my awareness that in the United States, a fund exists. It's called the ARC Fund, um, founded by Kathy Wood in 2014. And she has, um, an investment approach that I very much appreciate. Uh, It's investing in high-tech and deep-tech companies. And she has put together a research team that is on the lookout for game-changing technology since 2014. And the nice thing with her fund and her team is that every year she issues a report, which she calls Big Ideas Report, in which she dissects with her team um, the five platforms of innovation she has identified and of which she believes that they will shape our society in the coming one or two decades. And amongst these platforms of innovation, there is one life science application. Uh, she calls it the genomics revolution and um Everything around gene editing, gene sequencing, um, the therapies connected to what she calls genomics revolutions, and also diagnostics um, is analyzed by her team every year. So I asked myself, uh, what is this uh, hype all about, about genomics, CRISPR technology? And there are so many new terms uh, on the market that... um, I was looking for experts from my network, and uh, actually, interestingly, I found them here in Vienna, in Austria, Uh, and I'm very happy today that uh, I can welcome to this episode two experts from uh, uh, Vienna, Austria, and uh, Germany. Uh, It's Thomas Moser and Tilman Birkstümer from Alien Biotech. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Christian, for having us. Great to be here.
0: Good to see you. Let me ask you uh, one initial question first. Um, What is your background?
1: Yeah, if I may start. So, my background background is in, in genetics. So, I studied in Salzburg, then, yeah, did my PhD in developmental biology, then went into industry for a few years, and then, yeah, moved to Vienna to work uh, as a technology licensing uh, officer for Austrian universities, which was quite interesting task these days. This was late 90s, because this was also the time when the Austrian biotech scene really evolved. And I also got drawn into this... uh, this uh, field of, of, of seed financing and from my colleagues because we also had a fund that invested into this area. And yeah, one of the first uh, business plans I got on my table was from Intercell, which uh, back in these days, yeah, made the first financing round. So it was really super exciting times. And yeah, in the, in the coming years, I've grown into this role. And and yeah, in the end, we, we managed our own uh, venture capital fund. And invested into early stage uh, companies, uh, but after some time, I, I went back into the, the operational area again. Early two thousand fifteen, I two thousand fourteen, I yeah, I, I went into the biotech scene again as a operational manager, and, and together with Stillman, we managed a spin-off of another biotech uh, company called Haplogen Genomics in the area of gene-edited cell lines. And This startup was reasonably successful. Yeah, Within a short time period, we we could sell this to Horizon Discovery, a UK-based company, which was back in the days really considered one of the main tech company being active in this area of, of gene editing and having a very strong also IP base in this area. Yeah. And then it was quite exciting time where we worked for three years for this UK company. But, uh, after some time, as you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting to work with this medium sized to big companies, but after some times as an entrepreneur, you want to take your, uh, own fate again and, and decide, uh, and make it, make the decisions on your, on your own. And that's uh, why we, we then founded our own company again. Yeah. Which we probably will discuss later on, which was called beginning eight, eight, 2018. We started alien biotechnology, which has uh, developed since then quite, quite well.
0: Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, I completely agree to your statement that uh, working with big corporations is uh, a completely different world than uh, evolving a new idea from the ideation phase into the pre-seed and seed stage and uh, first financing rounds. And uh, it's a different world. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Tilman, where are you coming from?
2: Yeah I'm a I'm a biochemist by training i um, did a PhD in Berlin on on virology um host virus interaction and then came to Vienna as a postdoc where I joined uh, Julius Perthy furgas lab um and after some time there um Julio asked me whether I wanted to join Hapogen as the first scientist and that was sort of a very exciting prospect to join um, a newly founded company that back in the days um was really sort of being built um and so then I spent um, essentially um, three four years at haplogen, um, and that is was around the time then uh, when when CRISPR um, came to the scene, and we and we very quickly realized that this was going to be a game changing technology, and and started using it early in two thousand thirteen. So that that was really around the time the first papers suggested that this could be used in mammalian cells, and very quickly built what back in the days was the largest collection of knockout cell lines um, available sort of to date. And uh, that was then the basis for uh, the acquisition by uh, Horizon Discovery. And then at Horizon, I had um, various roles in in R&D, essentially, um, driving um, technology development. I had sort of teams in Cambridge, teams in Vienna, and um, in the end was in charge of um, innovation across the entire company, um, which which was sort of had a US site, a UK site, and, and a site in Vienna. And then sort of recently, as as Thomas um, pointed out, we bought it off and we, we founded our own company early 2018. And really the main driver there was to get um, back into the driver's seat. I mean, that was really the, the thing that um, that in a in a bigger organization is you know if you once you've had the privilege let's say to work in a small um, efficient organization where um, decision making works and 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 you're sort of used to that it, it's not easy to to find um, yourself uh, in, a, in a in a bigger organization where everything needs a committee and 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 sort of different people weigh in people point out caveats and then you know nothing happens. Um, So we're um, we're very much enjoying, I think, that um, um, flexibility and agility that we now have um, back.
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start.
0: uh, for the excitement of the startup world. So let's yeah. let's put it that way. Uh, you explained uh, that you founded in 2018 your current company. Uh, it's named Alien Biotechnology. Where is the name coming from?
1: Uh, sorry, this was an interesting process to find the name for the company. Basically, it can be tracked back to a, a Greek scholar called Elianus, who was a Famous natural scientist that back in the days and who had yeah did some landmark kind of books in in of of uh, characterizing the fauna and flora of the of the ancient Greek and and we felt that this is a a good a good characterization what we do with our our technology base. so it's really about going into the mechanisms of life and Of cells and and that's what we can essentially do with our technology base and and platform. Therefore, we felt this this was quite a suitable name for our company.
0: I like I like all names that begin with A. I think it's uh, <laughs> had tremendous advantage. Uh for companies that need to attend conferences because when <laughs> I get the company names listed alphabetically uh, and I want to reach out to, it doesn't matter if it's investor or pharma companies, they always start every conference with A. And when there are 2000 companies uh, at uh, this event, then I end up somewhere at C or something. Yeah. So uh, I, I always it comes to my mind, names beginning with A uh, have an advantage
1: in our world. <laughs> That's why the companies now start with numbers. This is even more of a <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's take it up a notch or with a point or with a bracket marks. Yes, what is the core focus of alien pair technology? What 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 is your business?
1: Yeah. So the core focus is really to bring together these two landmark technologies. One on the is is obviously the gene scissors, CRISPR technology. I think we will go into detail later on on that. But the other very important part is this uh, part is this single cell component that uh, forms a, an important part of our technology portfolio. And we bring this together. What this means, what does this uh, single cell resolution and revolution mean? So if you think of a tumor biopsy, uh, then as a biologist, you uh, or a medical doctor, you are probably aware that the biopsy uh, that you take from a from a tumor creates many different cell types. So you have some cells that are kind of necrotic, that are uh, that have died. You have some some fibrotic uh, tissue. You have different blood cells, maybe, and and you have the the tumor cells. So if you analyze this whole tumor sample, you always look at the average between all these different cell types. So the analysis in the end is, is somehow average the signal may be weaker. What you can do with single cell technologies that you really look at each single cell and uh, this provides superior resolution and therefore if you are able to only look at the Tumor tissue, uh, you can learn learn a lot from that because the signal is not blurred by by some other cell types that you're not interested in. And what we take this approach one step further in that we perturb genes in uh, single cells and and look at the consequences this genetic perturbation has on the phenotype uh, of the cell and what we can do with that is is really to look for new targets for for new therapeutics therapeutics with really unprecedented resolution and that's obviously of very big interest uh, for for many international from, uh, international cooperation partners like uh, big pharma companies, biotech companies. I mean, it's a super specialized business. I think we have built a, a very significant know-how in this area. It's very specialized and therefore, yeah, we feel we are on a good good track. I think the kind of uh, secret in, in these days is really to have a kind of special topic that you work on and, and really focus on that. And, and we have built of a team of yeah, more than 30 people now that really exclusively, exclusively focus on this this very special topic. And, and I feel we really uh, uh, could create uh, very interesting partnerships through this technology base. Tilman, do you want yeah. To, to, yeah, no. to add to this great explanation?
2: No, I think... Um, thomas Thomas summarized it very well. It's really the um, the single cell topic which 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 is sort of which is married, if you like, with um crispr and I think what's interesting for for a startup initially, as they say you know it's important that you work. In a in a in a relatively small niche because you're very few people so you need to focus on on something and ideally ideally that something is quite narrow and then you know in our case we we sort of started in this space when the when the field was much less developed and and we were sort of betting on this field um, uh, on on the expansion of this field and this is what we're really seeing after um, sort of being in this business for two three years there's a lot um, of excitement in single cell technologies and people really appreciate that Um, we cannot just grind up tissues or grind up cells and sort of average above them but we really need to learn um sort of from the individual cell, what's, what's going on? Um, because these cells differ very much. It's like looking at a group of people, right? You can now say, oh, we look at uh, all the faces uh, individually or we create sort of an average face. The average face will maybe tell you uh, a little bit, right? Are we in Western Europe or in Africa? So it's not, that there's still information in that, but looking at the individual faces will will sort of give you a lot more flavor and will reveal Um, a lot more information and then the other bit is really the the CRISPR allows us to um, provide causative data and that's very important and very powerful because a lot of the other um, techniques that are out there you know for instance single cell sequencing on its own is, is essentially a descriptive technology it's a technology that that looks at you know cellular properties reports the cellular properties but they really are there is no sort of way to say why a cell developed in this way or developed in another way. What CRISPR allows us to do is change gene expression, change one gene in a cell very specifically and look at the functional consequences of that. So that, um, you know, establishes then a causative relationship between that gene and the change we observe. And, And such data are still very scarce, right? A lot of people out there even in the target um, discovery and target validation space, they will look at large epidemiological studies. They will look at population genetics. They will look at, you know, often very biased starting points like, oh, let's look at the papers that people have published in the past five years. But to have an unbiased start, provide a, a data set that, that provides causative relationships, that I think is very strong and um And that's why we're seeing sort of growing interest in our um, technology from sort of pharma and biotech companies.
0: That's, that's amazing. Um, Let's, you mentioned a little bit um, the business side of life uh, in, in your opening speech and let's before we dive deeper into crispr and uh, gene editing and gene sequencing uh, let's dive a little bit also into the business model of uh, life science companies mm-hmm. um, i'm coming from business background and uh, started to learn more about this B2B value chain in 2006 when I joined Nubriva, Innovati's Um, And the first few years in life science were scary because it's a very, very unique value chain and a very, very unique, um, let's say, uh, sort of business models that I, I learned to appreciate. But unfortunately, they are not very well documented. So it would be really great uh, to get more insights into how you have set up the business side of alien uh, biotechnology.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, this is uh, one of the most important points in, in when we formed our company and we we gave this significant uh, consideration. Yeah, so as you already pointed out in biotech, there are many, many different business models. And yeah, also in my life as an investor, I so saw many many companies and many different business models. So obviously, yeah, if you do it on your own, you, you want to make it better than others. So, so we have set up Alien as it is. And then this basically, at least where we stand for now, is is a status where we perform this uh, functional genomic screens as we, we call it uh, for uh, big pharma and biotech companies. And we We get a certain chunk of the of the value chain of these results of these screens. and uh, these screens are, as as we said before, these are typically used for for target discoveries, so you can find new points and and proteins within the cell where therapeutics can be uh, developed, and you learn also a lot about uh, mechanisms uh, of disease. So on the one side, we can generate these data and results out of the screens. And on the other side, obviously, we are a very specialized technology platform company. We develop sustainable intellectual property out of these uh, screens because yeah, this whole field, obviously, as you can imagine, is high, is developing at the uh, very high speed, so the best organizations on the east and west coast are active in the in this area and and they have a focus on this so the the pressure on on staying ahead is is really uh, significant but uh, as we have a very focused team in this this area we we can afford uh, doing that and really yeah staying staying on top of the technology development. Yeah, so that's basically our our business model. We obviously yeah, generate uh, cash flows and revenues in in the project with our international customers. It's a very international business. So I think we only have one one customer in in continental Europe. It's really the main markets in US, UK, Japan, where our cooperation partners are located. And, and yeah, with these we we typically work on a Project basis of let's say yeah typical projects uh, have a duration of let's say nine to eighteen months, and within such uh, such projects, we we develop uh, develop these this technology further and, and generate the results that we described before.
2: Stay with us;
1: we'll be right back.
2: The coaching conversation two thousand twenty-four. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial
1: intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development,
2: just to name a few, I hope you'll check out our podcast. Yeah, and maybe to add to this, I think we um, there always there are always different ways to to sort of um, make a business out of technology. and um, one other one other um, sort of recent development that we're very excited about is that we that we founded a spinoff a daughter company. Um, together with a Cambridge, UK-based biotech named um, BitBio. And in this daughter company, we sort of carved out a a particular area. In this uh, this specific case, Um, it's stem cell biology. There's a lot of um, and and, and growing interest in human stem cells um, for various applications, um, certainly for gene and cell therapy, but also as um, research models and, and tools and, and we said, you know, the technology that we have developed at Alien um, has sort of very interesting applications in this space. And, and this application has gotten so big um, that together with a partner, we're actually setting up um, a separate vehicle, a separate company. And, and within that company, where we're both um, managing directors as well, we're really um, driving the development of novel um, stem cell types um, that that can well not, not stem cell types, novel cell types as they can be obtained um, um, from stem cells and and that vehicle because if it was such of such great interest to us and to our partners in in Cambridge um, sort of was then was then co-funded um, by the partner in Cambridge. Um, so we think that's that that's that's another interesting way of sort of getting, technology funded. It, it, it can be sort of projects that run for a certain duration and then they end, but it can be that these projects become big and important enough so that you can actually um, set up a separate company with a dedicated team that will grow um, this additional application of the technology and that secure separate funding in this entity.
0: That's great to hear. Congratulations. Uh, so you did it twice, uh, won the first foundation in 2018, uh, back into the startup world. And then the second one, which year was
1: it? Yeah, the second one was, was in September, yeah. September last year only. Yeah. So, yeah, well, it's, um, but it's somehow, it's somehow linked. So, so mm. kind of. <laughs> so it's not a real foundation, <laughs> no. I mean, although it's it's a separate company, mm-hmm. it's a separate mm-hmm. entity, and and obviously you have to yeah, recruit the team there and and uh, but we felt in this very special case that that this really makes sense uh, to form an own entity really for the work to be done in in stem cells and and cell types derived from these stem cells because maybe. This should be mentioned as well, that kind of the bracket that keeps all the work at Alien together as well is really this focus on cellular models that are highly physiologically relevant. What we mean by that is that the cellular models we work with, we feel are much better suited than the typically used immortalized cancer cancer lines that are used in, in... in uh, in pharma and biotech uh, research and development. So the goal really is to have something, a a model that can be well translated into human, uh, into human trials in the end with a much higher probability than this uh, typically used cancer cell lines, which in many cases have very weird uh, genomes have lots of mutations. Even the fact that they grow unlimited is is not not natural. Every cell that you take out of the human body is typically quite limited in lifespan. So so this is an an important focus of of our work as well. I mean, which means that's super challenging because on the one side, an alien, we work in in primary T-cells. So you take blood from the patient, extract these uh, these cells and cultivate them. you can easily imagine that's very challenging, but uh, we have managed these, uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, very tough points, and, and our team, yeah, has established the systems, and therefore, yeah, we can perform our kind of other technologies now in these advanced talent modes. That's great. So basically,
0: instead of um say founding a second division in your company, you decided to spin it out, uh, get it financed separately yeah. and keep with both entities your particular core focus on the market so that right. the storytelling is not diluted with uh, with an approach that might, when we look at it in one company, uh, might a little bit uh, raise questions why it yeah. is uh, in, in, in one part. Yeah. Um, when I understand your approach, uh, it's a B2B business model. Uh, in which you are uh, uh, let's say accumulating expertise in the company in the field around these two topics of your companies and then you approach the pharma industry Mm -hmm. and enter into research collaborations with them which i assume is not uh let's say a week or so uh am i right with my assumption that these are multi-years collaborations down the road that uh uh uh, consist of several projects and are not, yeah. uh, let's say, like buying a used car so that you uh, no. approached once. So they really want to, to understand, get your expertise in the fields that they don't have. Right. Um, do you, and I also assume that they take over the expenses and the cost. Uh, do you also participate in the upside? I mean, um, if something evolves into a product mm-hmm. later on. Yeah.
1: And existing partnerships, we don't have this yet, but. You're making a, a very good point. Obviously, this is the goal for the future that we participate in the downstream value creation in terms of yeah, percentages of milestones and, and also maybe royalties. Uh, but this is a bit dependent on the face of the company. Obviously, in the beginning, it was important uh, for us to get alien off the ground and mm-hmm. really establish ourselves as a major technology player in this very special field. and and. We have gained significant traction in the meantime. I mean, yeah, recently we could uh, we could communicate that yeah we are doing three large projects with, with GSK. And, Congratulations! Uh, yeah, this was really a major major step forward uh, for Alien, and this also probably gives us a lot of uh, credibility. Uh, but as you rightly pointed out, this these are. Long projects that take take many months, uh, and and also involve a lot lot on our side. And yeah, in in the next projects that we will get on board, definitely this participation yeah, on the downstream side is important for us. In addition, the the improvement of the technology base is a value on its own. So we obviously apply for patents uh, in this this space certain. Patents on on parts of the workflow mm-hmm. uh, have been uh, have been applied for and, and they contribute to to this building of a sustainable value position for for alien besides this other lag that tillman already mentioned forming forming joint ventures with specialized partners for for specific topics which has already been exemplified for the stem sets, but that could also be true for certain
0: therapeutic areas yeah ip protection should not be underestimated so it can create a really nice mode around the business and and drive the value when the ip strategy is set up very well especially if it's a new field which uh, i consider CRISPR and gene editing still is uh, yeah um uh, still is rather new and uh mostly unprotected um when i when i think about the typical startup that i meet at incubation or acceleration programs these days uh First, they present the business plan, and the second, their will to reach out to investors for investment. And what I find interesting in your story, it sounds to me that you did it the other way around. So, I mean, you established your expertise, your business plan, and then went right to the customer. Or did they overhear that you also uh, were in talks with investors and got investment money? What was your strategy in funding the the initial days? uh,
1: We were in a kind of very privileged position on the on the one side, this was not our first company. So we have seen lots of companies before before and then have gained significant experience before. And also, as I said before, our three years at working for this uh, UK-based Horizon Discovery Company was really kind of very important times for us because we could really uh, expand our international networks to, to customers, to distribution partners. And obviously, this this helped us in in setting up, up uh, Alien later on. Then, so in terms of financing, we did not uh, really make big financing rounds. We have a bit of business uh, money, business angel money on board, which which comes from a yeah I would say a friend. Uh, and besides that, we don't have uh, institutional institutional capital on board. Uh, Because we were in this kind of uh, privileged position that we really could fund us right from the beginning with significant uh, project money coming from our cooperation partners. But yeah, obviously, this would not rule out that in one of the maybe JVs that we plan for the future, then that we bring in, uh, we see money there for, yeah, for certain uh, therapeutic developments that could be done in such a the company
2: I mean for the time being uh, I, I would add we're really enjoying the fact that we have independence there we, we, we don't have um, a board or an you know investors that we that we need to meet on a monthly basis provide reports you know answer questions right we can really decide um, what we think is right for the company um, on the other hand it means that we are focusing on the clients. This is. I think this is. Um, this is also a good point because it's. Um, it, it allowed us sort of from the first day to get real world feedback. Right. We were not in a position to develop something for two three years only to learn that nobody really needs this. Right. We were. We were. De- because we were dependent on money flowing in from people that want to work with us. We had to be sure that what we're developing. is is sort of in a very short period of time going to be, um, um, well, maybe not monetized, but is going to be needed, right? So so a lot of our developments are guided um, by customer needs. And because we have that direct interaction from day one, um, we're really not falling into the trap of developing something that we think is incredibly cool um, and then it maybe isn't.
0: Test, testing the market is always a good idea. I got my training in the 90s and the typical business model um, back then was um, develop a prototype find a customer. So once you have the first customer, it's validation enough and then look for growth capital. When I look at uh, the investment world today, especially in the early days, I think it's a little bit the upside down. It's uh, Develop a pitch deck, find an investor, and then hopefully you come to a prototype. And later on, you find a customer or other investors. So it's an interesting direction. Um, however, what I what what I saw when I entered the life science industry. I mean, of course, scientists were excited about new technologies. It uh, helped to improve their processes, their product development processes. Uh, that's 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 cool. But. In 2014, 15, 16, and especially in 18 and 19, this um, CRISPR and gene editing uh, did something amazing um, compared to other technologies. I mean, other technologies mostly stay hidden and uh, the, the usual uh, retail investor from the streets or the usual investment fund is not very interested in that. Not so with CRISPR and not so with gene editing and gene sequencing as I uh, said in the uh, initial uh, in, the, in the opening of the podcast episode, uh, the ARC funds, a uh, huge fan of uh, the genomics revolution. Uh, can you explain to the average investor a little bit what this excitement is all about? Why gene editing is so different uh, to other technologies in our industry?
2: Yeah, I can, I can try that. So essentially, the, you know, we know sort of since the completion of the Human Genome Project, which was first sort of completed um, in 2001, I believe. Um, What we know since the completion of the human genome is we know the the building blocks of the the cell and of the human body, the so-called genes, right? And we have 20,000 of them. And we essentially know that drugs act on gene products. So they they, um, take a product, a protein in a cell that is encoded by a gene and they modulate it. And as a consequence of that, we can treat disease. But you know, until the advent of CRISPR, we really had no way of manipulating genes, let's say, in a faithful way. There were there were sort of other technologies out there that could try to do this, you know, for the aficionados. This was RNA interference. It sort of worked a little bit, but not really. And and what's exciting about CRISPR is that we're now able to do this. And this gives us sort of two, I think, angles that are that are that or two opportunities that we couldn't tap into. One is, you know, for the researchers in the lab, we can now ask, what does that gene do in a cell, right? It's a very fundamental question. And and if I have a hypothesis as to whether this gene is a target of a drug, I I can ask, does it does sort of targeting this gene or targeting this gene product, does that make a good drug, right? And that's super important because the drug discovery process is a very long one. It takes sort of, you know, if it's not the COVID vaccine, it, it, it usually takes sort of something like 10 years to go from nominating a target to having a drug um, on the market, if not longer. And so the, the nomination at the beginning is, is sort of the critical starting point. And if you don't get it right at that point, you will do 10 years of you know, medicinal chemistry and toxicology and you name it but, but the drug will not do what it's supposed to do. So sort of that is the, the first angle that I think is, is super exciting, that we now have a tool that at least conceptually or potentially allows us to nail the most important drug targets and thereby increase the chance of a drug to be successful. The second is if you want to if you want to take that thought a little further, you know, in basic biology or in basic science, it's very similar. We, we you know, people are looking at a process. Let's say you're a researcher studying uh, diabetes, right? You suddenly have a way of finding out whether a gene has a role in diabetes or not. That's what the basic science uses uses CRISPR for. And then, sort of, the future of of CRISPR is really sort of is is really not only as a tool to discover new drugs but is you know crispr could become the drug itself so we could face a situation where you have a you, you know the, probably the simplest model is you have a gene defect right you might you might have um sickle cell anemia that's that's a common one that people are interested in these days it's a blood disorder so your 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 blood cells sort of in in this case your red blood cells um, are dysfunctional and that is functional because you have an error in your genome, in a particular gene. And this error, you know, people know for decades, but there's nothing you can do about it. Right? That's the that's the sad thing. It's And it, it, it's very similar about many other hereditary disorders, right? You find out your kid has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. You, you can precisely map it to the mutation, but there's nothing you can do about it. And, and the exciting prospect about CRISPR is you might be able to correct this mistake, if you like, or this error in the genome and thereby cure disease. Of course, there's a lot of technical hurdles in the way, so it will not be something that will happen tomorrow, but at least conceptually, that's why it's so exciting. Any any disease that's caused by a defect in a gene, and there are many of those, many of um, those that we know and that, that a lot of people have heard of, you know, cystic fibrosis. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long list. It's hundreds, if not thousands of, of disorders. Um, those we can potentially treat and potentially cure um, with CRISPR. And, and that is just un, unheard of. Um, there was no sort of similar development, I would say, in, in, a, in a long period of time um, that opened up such a vast field um, as gene editing did.
1: I mean, maybe to add to this also from a mechanistic point of view, the system is very elegant and relatively easy to use. I mean, there were systems around that could be used for similar purposes for editing the genome very specifically, but these were complicated and very specific. And with CRISPR, you basically have a protein that is kind of programmed by a short stretch of of a nucleic acid, which can be easily synthesized in any lab, and you bring this together. If if you tell it uh, very simply, and you can uh, you can make a genome edit, and and this ease of access also contributed to this hype, hype around this uh, CRISPR editing that only can be compared to polymerase chain reaction, this this uh, gene amplification that yeah <laughs> also was was maybe the, the latest landmark uh invention in, in biology before CRISPR. So when I put it bluntly, on
0: one hand, uh, there is excitement uh, about the diagnostics and understanding the development of diseases better, uh, especially those that are rooted in genetics and have their causes so that you really can trace back uh, which gene plays which role in what disease at what point of the development of the disease. And the second is that you correct it so that you uh, go into the therapeutics field and uh, say, OK, when we identify the problem, why not solve it? Um, when was all this developed? What is the what is the history of 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 gene editing? I don't I don't think it it comes out of nowhere that uh, in 2013 suddenly uh, someone woke up and said, let's do gene editing. Uh, can you give a little bit more information on the history of uh, this technology?
2: Yeah, so so the history you know very briefly is that already quite some time ago people noticed that in in bacteria there are certain regions that contain repeats and you know, people found these these repeats and they were not quite sure what they were and what they were for. But already quite early on, people suspected that these might have to do with immunity. And, and, and sort of one key insight was then that so repeat is essentially a 20-base sequence in the genome that is sort of duplicated. But between those repeats, there were sequences. And, and when people first um, sequenced those, they realized that these sequences between those repeats came from bacteriophages now bacteriophages are essentially the viruses that infect bacteria so that sort of meant um or, or that sort of strongly pointed to these repeats being involved in in immunity right because these are sequences found in a bacterium but they're not from the bacterium they're from the phage that infects the bacterium so it sort of reminds us of of immunity that, that, you know, much like we know it um, um, sort of um, in humans. And then um, the key insight came um, really that, that sort of got this entire field um, um, to, to sort of heat up and, and become very exciting um, came from the discovery that there was an enzyme. This is the, the enzyme called Cas9. And what this enzyme could do is it could take these sequences that, you know, in the bacterium. Come from the bacteriophage. And they could essentially trigger a DNA double strand break in a sequence that's complementary to the sequence inserted between the repeats. So what that meant is if the phage comes in, you know, the bacterium has seen that phage before, remembers it because that sequence is integrated between those repeats, it can take those sequences, mash them. To the phage DNA, and the phage gets destroyed. It gets cut and cleaved by this enzyme Cas9. That was sort of the key, the key piece of the puzzle. And and sort of people had figured parts of the puzzle out um, before. Um, obviously, it was sort of an entire field with with a lot of people contributing. But the key insight for which then Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna were no, awarded the Nobel Prize um, last year was they were able to take all the components that were needed in the system and make them in vitro. So make the Cas9 endonuclease in bacteria, make a so-called guide RNA. This is this, this RNA molecule with a with repeat sequences, put that together in a, in a Petri dish or in, a, in that case in an Eppendorf tube and show that this could trigger programmed targeted cleavage of the reaction that is um, of the of the DNA that's complementary to the to the guide RNA that you put in. So they'd sort of identified the minimal components of the system and said this is this is what we need to make it work. And then obviously people could take this very quickly and make it work in human cells, in plant cells, in animal cells, and so on and so forth. But that key insight, that was really um, what got the field started. This is a paper they published. Late in 2012, it's actually work initiated um, here in Vienna um, by um, um, Chris Jelinski, PhD student in uh, Emmanuel Charpentier's lab when she was still in Vienna, but then the work sort of was completed um, when she was in Sweden. Um, And and, and there was sort of a a partner effort at at Berkeley where um, Jennifer Doudna, Um, was based together with her PhD student, Martin Gineck, who is today a professor in Zurich. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: If you're an engineer you're a scientist, you love Formula One, you love cycling, you love learning about how new technologies are changing the world around us, then I thought you may want to listen in to my new podcast, the Neil Ashton podcast. We talk to leading engineers and scientists from around the world hear about their life stories, hear about new technologies and hopefully educate you and give you a better sense of how key things like machine learning, artificial intelligence, supercomputing are changing the world around us. If that sounds like it's something you might like, you should come and have a listen. That's, that's amazing. So Vienna um, seems to play a key role in that field. Um, when I look at uh, the community, you are here, then you mentioned uh, Haplogen, the company that uh, was also, I think, 2013 uh, established. And then the company CRISPR Therapeutics is also uh, run by uh, Rod Konobak, And uh, I think Emmanuel Charpentier is also still on the board of the company. Absolutely. Um why is Vienna so attractive? Uh, is this uh, just pure luck or uh, coincidence, or is there um, a special reason why why, why CRISPR is uh, is leaving such a heavy impact on the industry here?
2: Yeah, I mean, first I would not like, I mean, as much as I like Alien and Haplogen, I think to name them in, in the same um, sort of um, row as as CRISPR therapeutics or Emmanuel Charpentier is a bit of a big pair of <laughs> shoes to wear. Um, no, I think it's essentially the just reason-
0: coincidence that you're all in the yeah. same city.
2: <laughs> no, I, I think it is to some extent it is coincidence. Obviously, the fact that mm-hmm. um, Rodger Novak was involved in and, and Emmanuel when when are is involved in in CRISPR therapeutics is because Emmanuel had such an important role in discovering that. I think you could say that it was important for Vienna. To have um, this, this sort of this group at the, at the university, not only Emanuel's group, but also sort of Pavel Kovarik, um, Thomas Decker, people that were focusing on bacterial genetics, right? That was, that was sort of the key subject. These people didn't, didn't start to discover a, a novel gene editing tool, right? And particularly, Emanuel, she was a bacterial geneticist trying to understand what these repeats do in, in the bacterium, trying to understand bacterial immunity, if you like. Um, so I think in, in that sense, um, that is probably Vienna's contribution, right? That they had this focus on bacterial genetics and that then whatever we learned, um, from bacterial genetics could be translated and became, uh, a tool that, that, that now we're using, um, for a different purpose. Um, so yeah, I think that is, um, um, it's, that, that was quite important. And, and the university of Vienna obviously is still involved, um, because, um, the, the, intellectual property, which is the, the foundational IP, let's say around the world is still partly owned by the University of Vienna together with Berkeley and, and Emmanuel on her own, which is, is, is another interesting detail because she moved to Sweden. In Sweden, academic researchers retain full rights on their, on the IP they discovered, which is different from the situation here, right? If you're a professor at the university and you make an important discovery, that is typically Owned by the university, you get a share of that typically, but you don't own it, right? Whereas in in Sweden, it's 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 the other way around. So because she had moved to Sweden, which is probably the only place that has such an IP uh, right, she actually personally owns that IP, um, you know, up to this day. And um, and and obviously that had a, a significant um, financial impact, positive financial impact for um, Emmanuel, I assume.
0: I think it's uh, very interesting to learn more about uh, IP protection, different IP protection strategies, especially uh, in the area of basic research. Um, And it's really interesting. Um, What I really like uh, is to see how such ideas evolve. So first you have a small group to start working on it. And if it works, then uh, the industry just gets bigger and bigger and more companies evolve and more researchers are drawn in and uh, everything grows naturally and, and effortlessly. Uh, it's also interesting to hear Vienna the, uh, in the same sentence with uh, Berkeley, for example, University of Vienna. It's um, there. There's a lot going on here in the city and uh, in, in the heart of Europe, which is uh, not so obviously marketed like digital advancements or app development. So I really like that. When I think about gene editing, um, I think um, when we're uh, looking at the yellow press, there's also a lot of uh, fear and uh, discussions around that, if this is really good, uh, if it's risky or dangerous. Uh, Can we talk a little bit about real life applications? So what this, uh, just to to give people more insight, what can we really do with gene editing and what is more on the superstitious side or on the the fear-based side and not really realistic. Um, What are some applications that you think about that this technology can uh, really grow into?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, apart from the functional genomics, which is what we are doing, sort of trying to understand Mm -hmm. the functions of genes. I think the biggest um, hope is that we should one day we will be able to cure disease. You know, it's obvious as you, as you just pointed out um, that this pertains to genetic disorders. We've, we've talked about that a little bit, but it's also true that we might potentially treat cancer. And that is, you know, cancer also has certain dependencies on certain genes more than others. Um, and we might be able to, um, to use CRISPR to switch off these, these genes that are either driving or supporting a cancer cell and thereby eliminate um, cancer. Um, it, uh, there's a lot of interest in, in an area called immuno-oncology, where mm-hmm. um, what we can do is we can essentially take the blood from a patient or take immune cells as they reside in a tumor. And we can we can change them with CRISPR to sort of reawaken them, right? They're, they're typically not very active against the tumor. That's part of the strategy, if you like, of the tumor to make them sort of not recognize the tumor because the tumor in principle is something that's, that that in an ideal world would be considered foreign so that the, that the body gets rid of the tumor. But of course the tumor has sort of, if you think of it in, in evolutionary terms, the tumor has an interest to stay hidden so that it can grow and it does not get attacked by immune cells. But these immune cells can be reawakened and there there are ways to do this with antibodies. Um, They're they're very famous uh, examples of of antibodies. And that was sort of the the basis um, for the Nobel Prize given in 2018 for antibodies that if you give them to people that reawaken these immune cells, but there is also a potential um, because blood cells are readily available, right? You can take them out of the body, you could CRISPR engineer them and put them back into the body. There is a, there is excitement about this opportunity. And that is, I think, one of the things that is on the on the near-term horizon that we might actually um get sort of our customized tumor treatment where people take the cells out, reprogram them with CRISPR, put them back in. Um the thing that people are obviously afraid of is is manipulation of the germline. So that means um, changing the sperm cells or oocytes so that we give rise to genetically engineered human beings. Um, this has apparently been done in China, and there was a lot of there was a there was an outcry for good reasons um, uh, about this. I don't think neither first I don't think this was a particularly good example because the researchers eliminated a receptor that um, um, typically allows um, HIV to enter cells. So there there are many different ways to treat HIV these days. So it's not needed to manipulate the genome of of these babies so that they cannot get HIV um, anymore. Um, So I think for the time being, there is a moratorium. Nobody is advocating the use of CRISPR in the germline. I think that that is that is the state of the of the affairs. Um, and I think it's good like that, right? We need to understand better the risks um, associated. Um, and, and with risks, I mean, you know, this is a is a you know, CRISPR is sometimes described as a genome scissor. So you can imagine that the scissor comes in and it cuts somewhere, but then you know, if the scissor is not so precise, it might cut somewhere else in the genome, which would mm. potentially cause harm. Um, And so that needs to be looked at very carefully um, before people consider something like um, germline treatment. So it's, I think it's, um, it's not on the horizon really. And there's nothing to be afraid of at this point because the entire scientific community is acting very responsibly about it. There are clear bans. And, and, you know, that is, is, is not a risk at this point
0: i think it's uh, very interesting this this idea that you pointed out um of let's say reprogramming antibodies um to which can help just put it bluntly reprogramming antibodies: to take it out of the body and uh uh let's say uh give them a clear order How they should act in the body, and which could evolve into the potential of making cancer a manageable disease. So it must not be uh, that patients then die from cancer, but simply can live and can manage the disease and stop it from growing, or also re- maybe also reverting the process so that it really. Uh, it's driven, let's say it's driven out of the body. Uh, in, in in simple words, uh, is that really a feasible goal? Do you see? Do you see this uh, this direction that it really evolves into um, therapeutics that really have an impact, or is it just uh, more like a combination therapy that you still have to use the toxins?
2: I think there. I think it's a reali- realistic opportunity. Obviously, we've seen the admission of the first so-called CAR therapies. Mm-hmm. These are T cells, which are. Reprogrammed with an antibody on the surface so that they recognize a tumor cell that they could previously not recognize. And so these therapies are given to patients. And for particular types of cancer, particularly cancers of the B cell lineage, so that that, that arise from antibody-producing cells, um, the, these types of therapies are, you know, I would say quite good. Um, However, I don't think realistically now with the therapies that that are being developed, there will not be an easy route into sort of um, a cure for for cancer as a whole, right? Cancer is is, is a very heterogeneous disease depending on where it arises. But even then, if you look at all the breast cancers, there are some that are quite manageable these days with drugs and others are really poorly manageable. And... um, to, to think that there will be one treatment that sort of one for all. I mean, that's, that I don't think is realistic, but to, um, I think the sort of since the discovery of CRISPR, the field of um, cell therapy. So to think of a cell as a therapeutic agent, right? That is sort of, I think, a concept that with the advent of CRISPR is becoming a reality. And, and, you know, we're seeing more and more examples of I would say clinical trials where um, where people explore the feasibility of that, and and my my anticipation is that in five years time we'll have a bunch of these, and in ten years time we'll have more. So it's it's a growing field, and um, the prospect is very exciting. So the prospect is that we might actually be able to um, treat diseases because because there are clearly cases. Um, where we've not made a lot of progress. I mean, there are cancer types. There are particular cancers where, you know, we've we've developed targeted therapies, you know, chronic myeloid leukemia, for instance, was a disease that was very difficult. The entire, let's say, blood cancers, um, we've really seen a lot of um, improvement over the past sort of 10, 20 years in, in median survival. So we're a lot better at managing those diseases. And then there are other areas where we're really, really not doing well uh, you know, many of the brain cancers, glioblastoma, for instance, is 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 really really still as bad as we were thirty years ago. We've seen very little progress, um, to my understanding. And um, and the hope is that uh, in, in some of these areas, at least, CRISPR-based um, therapies might um, provide novel opportunities.
0: Yeah, find the point interesting that you mentioned uh, the the drug that cures everything or all, all cancer types. So it always reminds me of J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the the one ring that pines them all. <laughs> um I, I I don't I don't think that this will ever evolve up. So that's one, one therapy can be used for everything. It's, I see it more like uh, adding uh, additional tools to the toolbox of physicians so that they can treat their patients better on a more personalized way uh, rather than hoping that uh, the cure everything drug that also makes pretty and rich uh, comes to the market i don't see that coming um let's go a little bit uh, further down the superstitious road uh, i really liked it so for example the marvel universe with all the superheroes that can uh, that can fly and uh, have superpowers and super strengths and uh, this i think is one fear on the market or one hope on the market so that you can go to uh, to your physician and say, hmm, today I would like to fly, can you uh, edit my uh, genome a little bit so that uh, <laughs> I can ignore gravity and the laws of physics? Uh, is something really possible that uh, the Marvel Universe is coming to life with gene editing or is this just um, just, just, just a fear that, isn't, that should not be taken so seriously?
2: I, I would say yes and no. Um I think the, the, the problem with CRISPR as with any cell engine therapy is always delivery, meaning, you know, if, if if you could do something, if you could get access to certain cells, then you could potentially manipulate them and you could potentially improve them, right? So I give you an example of that. There is at least suspicion in the in the in sports that, you know, people, instead of taking erythropoietin, which is one of the drugs that people take to um, improve their fitness, they might actually take, sort of deliver, they might actually deliver erythropoietin through molecular biology, right? And that's totally plausible for a molecular biologist to, to, to see that. You don't even need CRISPR for that. You might take a virus that makes erythropoietin and you put that into the blood cells of an athlete, it will have very similar effect as taking, um, um as taking that drug, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it, it, I think it's possible. But here, you know, in in the case of the athlete, you know, you do this in a blood cell. So in a blood cell, I think it's feasible because you can access the blood. There is also a, a sort of potentially a safety, a safety net, if you like, um, because because you could potentially take the blood out, do the treatment, and only when it's safe, you put it back. Now, I'm not advocating that we do this with with erythropoietin for for sportsmen, but I'm trying to illustrate that you can manipulate the blood potentially, and you could potentially create superhumans if you wanted to stay in that that, uh, picture. Um, With a lot of other things, it's, it's very difficult. With a lot of other traits, it's very difficult to envisage that. Right, if you think you could make someone more intelligent, right? If you believe that intelligence resides in the brain, which we possibly all believe, then then you would need to get something into the brain and you would potentially need to affect a lot of cells and, and a complicated varying. So to believe that a simple change in a cell, you know, would change your ability to to be um, you know to, to think, let's say that is that I find that very unrealistic. Um, so, I think that the main limitation will be, on the one hand, our understanding of of the process and and if you stay in the example of intelligence, that's probably a very complicated thing to understand. It's regulated by a lot of different genes. It's regulated by the environment, their genetic changes, epigenetic changes to believe that there you could make one change and suddenly become super intelligent is is close to impossible or at least very unlikely. but a simple change. Coupled uh, like you know presence or absence of erythropoietin, coupled with an accessible tissue like the blood, I think that's a that's a possibility, and 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 obviously that's why then organizations like um, NADA, which are looking at drug abuse in sports, have started to look at that because it's a, it's a possibility, and they they might be a few years behind the the athletes in that in that sense, but they will look at that and uh, uh, they will hopefully sort of find these cases and and make sure they don't happen.
0: Um, I mean, there are a lot of uh, interesting ideas on the market these days. So one idea is from Elon Musk. And I think also Jeff Bezos is buying into that uh, flying to the moon or flying to the Mars and uh, putting a colony on, on Mars. And it reminds me of a book I've read uh, when I was a teenager it was a science fiction book about uh written for teens um about uh, a family who traveled to a to a distant planet and uh, with a little bit let's say different environments than the earth and it was um hardly survivable for for adults because they didn't have uh, proper genetics for that but uh the kid was uh, genetically engineered uh, to live in a hostile environment like um, normal human beings on the planet um which when i listen to Elon musk uh, where he says okay the future of the human race is uh, in the stars and we have to leave the planet at some point in time uh to to ensure the survival of our race it, would it be possibly in future what do you think so that you can uh, create genetically enhanced human beings uh, that can also survive uh conditions on other planets that are currently let's um, a little bit hostile or oh, let's not think uh too scientifically uh to 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 uh, science fiction typically uh for example, also on earth, I mean um, we have this climate uh, climate change that everybody's talking about. Would it be possible to also over generations um, develop the genome in a way that um, we don't have to fear uh, our race to go extinct? Is that a possible application or is this uh, still science fiction?
2: Well, i think first you know personally i'm more worried about technology killing the human race than that, that technology is <laughs> saving us but but maybe that's my pessimism but then i think what's what's possible is for instance you know genetics determines your tolerance to heat right it's clear mm-hmm. that there is a genetic component to that i i haven't looked into that but i suspect it's not just one gene that has a very strong effect, but it's sort of or one SNP, um, one one sort of small change, but it's multiple. So I think if that were known, it's it's not it's not unthinkable that we create humans that can tolerate cold much more. If you think of you know going to Mars, maybe we want someone mm-hmm. that can tolerate heat uh, better. Or so. Mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. I think that if you if you really think in the future, I think it's it's uh, it's a possibility. Um, again, at this point, I would, I would question if, if, if you sort of want to make very few changes to the genome and that would sort of be dictated by caution, right? You just want to, I think if you, if you made too many changes, you're worried about messing something up fundamentally, but if you wanted to make very few changes in the genome, then you would, um, you would need to understand what those changes are that you need to make. And those few changes, let's say, if you allow five, those five changes would have to have a significant impact, which, you know, if you stay in the example of heat and cold, I would suspect it's a lot more SNPs that, that give rise to that. But I think, at least conceptually, it is possible that we get to a point where we have, you know, with more and more genomics data coming in, where we have a good understanding. Of the small changes that, that make, you know, the Inuit more cold resistant um, than us, let's say, and that we could engineer such a property um, back into our genomes to, to sort of potentially save us from, uh, uh, from climate change, uh, right? That's, I think it's potentially possible. Um,
0: now, I, th- I think i mean the, the ideas you have are great uh, on one hand understanding disease better um so when not not genetic but um the, the entire genomics field to understand where it's coming from what happens with diseases to go into therapeutics and so also uh curing diseases or enhancing human beings why not i would not be worried about it uh when i look at the growth rate of uh, the human race i think uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's doubled in the last 40 years or something, and it's still growing. Um, So we run into when I look at agriculture, for example, I think uh, it's it's obvious that at some point in time we run into a shortage of uh, of nutrition. Uh, Could gene editing play a role in this area?
2: Stay with us; we'll be right back.
0: Moving is right up there with death and divorce in the stress Olympics. But fear not. Turn that box of woes into a crate of woes with moving tips in the Life Beyond Boxes podcast with Premium Q Moving. Dive into the world of hassle-free moves, learn tips and tricks to save on cash and your sanity. Say goodbye to those moving meltdowns and hello to the smooth sailings, or should we say smooth movings? Tune into Life Beyond Boxes with Premium Q Moving on lifebeyondboxes.com or find us on your favorite podcast platform. And with us, unpack the secrets to a stress-free move.
2: Yeah, I think potentially I would say yes. Again, my, my personal feeling is that there is a lot more we could do without gene editing to feed the world. But um, if you wanted to look at that angle, I think, you know, in agriculture, we're sort of facing this this weird situation that if we're making crops with ionizing radiation, like with mm. x-rays, right? we're shooting x-rays at plants. To to, to sort of create superior variants, um, then then this is sort of not considered genetic engineering. Whereas if we apply CRISPR or sort of other means to make uh, a a plant, then this is considered genetic engineering. So um, I think that, I I think particularly in Europe, people are quite resistant to the use of um, genetic engineering and. and I think rightfully demand that, that this is declared. I would totally subscribe to that, that, that the consumer can decide whether or not they would like to eat a genetically modified tomato. At the same time, you would like to educate people that if the other tomato that they eat is a, is engineered with x-rays, that, that is probably not much better. Um, but anyway, I think, um, to come back to that question, we can, um, definitely enhance, um, Plants to become, for instance, resistant to um, certain um, pathogens, to become resistant to heat, um, right? Mm-hmm. That's another, you know, or or become more resistant to extreme weather conditions. Those are um, things we could potentially build in, and and we could we could always build them in, right? With the use of X-rays, as I just said. So people have done that for the past 50 years. But it's very costly and laborious and time consuming process. so the hope would be that if we have an understanding of where these favorable traits are encoded, that we can make these changes much faster, and we can then get um, to the plants that um, that we like and that have superior attributes. Um, so I think gene editing um, can help there. And 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 I would I would even say that I would prefer eating a geneticist tomato that was made with CRISPR over an X ray tomato, possibly. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that's uh, that's another um, interesting and exciting um, area of, of the technology that um, that um, i yeah. Again, I'm not sure to to what extent this will this will allow um, us to feed the world because of course all of these crops particularly genetically engineered crops they will be accessible to us right you and me they will not be accessible necessarily to in the places where people are starving so um
0: one one problem at a time, I think. One is the, one is the <laughs> development of uh, technology and the other one is the distribution or the fair distribution yeah, of that's, technology. That's,
2: yeah, that's true. And that's disconnected,
0: yeah. I mean, when I think about SARS-CoV-2, um, if, what, what what I really like is uh, the development speed that we saw with the vaccines. Um, I grew up in a world where, you mentioned it also in the podcast, it took five, a minimum of five to 10 years uh, from the lab bench with... Uh, let's say, lead candidate up to the market. And uh, what we really saw in the last year is when everybody works together globally and wants to solve a problem uh, in a year can be achieved a lot. If this is morally or ethically acceptable, it's a different question, but only to see that... uh, the whole industry can unite and focus on solving one single goal in, in only 12 months and bring a novel vaccine to the patients. This is, this is amazing. And I hope that, uh, it remains in our industry and also politicians and, and companies continue supporting this collaboration because with that spirit, we can practically, my opinion, solve a lot of diseases and a lot of problems. Um, the second part, of course, I mean, all the vaccines are on the market and now we see the distribution problematic. So that some countries can afford to, uh, to get more vaccines and they start, uh, vaccinating kids with a question if the risk benefit profile really justifies that. Whereas the WHO points out that in, uh, poorer countries or uh, not so rich countries, uh, healthcare workers don't have access to vaccines. And, uh, this is the population that is highest at risk and, uh, they would need that. So these are more political questions that we can also solve with a lot of debate and discussion. Uh, speaking about SARS-CoV-2, uh, let me just ask a blunt question. Is gene editing playing a role in vaccine development? Is this uh...
2: Well, I would say not to a great extent. I mean, first, it it, it did play a role relatively early on more for the um, discovery of targets. So mm-hmm. when, when the virus first came out and nobody knew anything about the virus, um, something like a CRISPR screen, this is the technology that we use at Alien, can provide you very quickly with an understanding of the critical host proteins, so the critical human proteins that the virus needs to make a living, right? So mm-hmm. you, you, and that is what people did. You know, I would say within within two or three months, we had we had almost like a map um, of the virus as it as it sort of travels um, through cells and and sort of uses cells and and, and abuses cells um, to its own benefit. And that is important because it potentially highlights intervention points. It highlights points where we could start making a drug. Now, of course, then making a drug is again a laborious process. We've been very fast with the vaccine, essentially because the entire platform had been set up by BioNTech, right? That was We were sort of in a particularly fortunate situation in that they had been building this mRNA platform, which was very scalable, easy to make very large amounts um and they had prepared this for some time but the truth is they didn't really have a very good example where they could apply this right and they're now saying oh we want to be an immuno oncology company but the truth is that they were sort of waiting for a first example to be sort of the the first test case that would show that that the advantages of the platform and i think you know, then sort of SARS-CoV-2 came and they were immediately uh, sort of spot on and said that this is the sort of the use case we've been waiting for and will now show the world that we can do this. And then, of course, it was amazing execution and um, it was it was very well done. With the vaccine development, I would I'm not fully sure there is a lot um, that that um, CRISPR could have contributed um um again, you know, you could you sort of vaccine development is, it always has to do with with the immune response that the vaccine elicits. So again, one could one could take CRISPR screening technology to understand the, the immune response as it as it um is elicited by the vaccine um a bit better to sort of um give an expectation of what's going to happen in the human body. Um but um Yeah, I I would say at least in sort of when this virus first came out and nobody knew about it, that's where, you know, CRISPR was really powerful.
0: I mean, as far as I remember, um, we have every three to five years such an event that new viruses um, appear somewhere in the world. And uh, what I understand from From your explanation is that in such events, uh, your technology that you have at Alien Biotechnology uh, can help to, uh, let's say, uh, unlock the secrets or discover the secrets or uncover the secrets of the virus. What is the virus doing in the body? Which route does it take? uh, Where can you uh, find access points for therapies? And that you can uh, shorten the length of the time um until uh this process is uh is finished so this would be one point and also later on when vaccines are developed uh, as far as i understand your explanation uh it also can help uh your technology to understand what's the vaccine doing in the body and uh is it really going down this uh the right route and uh can help uh, the scientists to make the vaccines more effective in, in later generations is that uh, picture correct that i got
2: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, with the only caveat being that sort of the, the, the drug target nomination, I think for SARS CoV 2 was, was something that's relatively quick. And of course, then the delivery of a, of a full drug discovery program is something that we're still sort of awaiting, right? Even, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been very quick with the vaccine, but it will probably take, you know, at least one, if not three more years until we have a first drug. That is a targeted treatment for the virus entering the clinic, right? That is usually a very laborious process. And that really cannot be short-circuited. There is really a lot of tests that just need to be done. And even with all the excitement um, and all the concern that we have of, of this um, virus causing the pandemic, nobody would be willing to take shortcuts there, right? With a vaccine, it was a slightly different thing. We knew that the platform was relatively safe. You know mRNA is a molecule that's quickly degraded, it does not integrate anywhere in the human body. So so there, you know, people were let's say willing to um I, I wouldn't call it shortcuts because they have mm. done all the clinical testing sure. properly, but it's but it's um right there are people were willing to accelerate things with um sort of more conventional drug discovery and more conventional drugs. This is just not possible.
0: Yeah shortcuts is such a nasty word. It's uh uh could could uh, create the impression that work was not done properly. Um, when I look at the duration of drug uh, development, um, my opinion it's uh, one one part that uh, n- takes a lot of time is fundraising. So when you look at the traditional model I mean uh, all the the early stage development work usually happens in in small biotech companies like yours uh not so much in the pharma industry anymore uh and even if it happens in the pharma industry you have these long decision making processes um i think what i saw last year um with my fundraising experience for vaccine companies from six, seven years ago uh, that there was much more willingness to pay into high risk projects uh, in the vaccine space, which of course, I mean, if I got a billion uh, dollar um, cash in my bank account, I can develop a vaccine also in no time because I can hire all the right people looking back at the traditional fundraising process. Um, it's, just comes in in chunks. So it gets 10 million, 20 million, then another 50 million. Then you have always a year in between uh, where you have to talk with experts and uh, go through the diligences. And this of course uh, takes away resources for development. So this Mm -hmm. also adds time and this was completely gone in the last year. Uh, The only thing that I saw is that all the money and all the political power was rooted into vaccine development and nothing happened on the therapeutic side. So it's uh, only recently, that uh, Biden announced that, uh, I think it was two weeks ago or one week ago, that the United States allocates $3 billion into development of therapeutics. And I also hope that Europe is going down the same route, because when we also would invest $3 billion, uh, it's basically $6 billion is the money that uh, we have to pay as a minimum to bring two therapies to the market. Uh, and if these six billion are really available and uh, easily available to scientists, uh, then I think also we can speed up the therapeutics development process. So this would just take one component out uh, that costs a lot of time.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I mean, the truth is that a lot of the therapeutic development happens in pharma companies, and and my feeling is if they're convinced about the indication and they're convinced. That they want to go down that route they they often have enough money if it's if it happens outside a pharma company then you're right money is is always short right it's also that you can hardly raise the amount of money that is needed for drug development hence sort of any startup um typically has a has a handover point in mind right They they, they might say we have a therapeutic ambition in rheumatoid arthritis but You know, typically we would only go until phase one that is completed and then we need to find someone because if we if we then need to fund a phase two or even a phase three study out of our own pocket, it gets so incredibly expensive that very few people are willing to take that risk. So that, you know, you could um, potentially alleviate by making public money available um, um, to, to sponsor this.
0: I agree with what you say when I look at phase three studies or market access or phase four studies. Um, pharma has enough money in that area. And I think this is also the the part of the industry that works very well. Uh, what, in my opinion, also works very well, especially in Europe, is uh, basic research. Uh, everything that happens in research organizations. We have Horizon programs. We have uh, FWF in Austria. We have FFG in Austria and other, other grant programs programs that help basic researchers and scientists to move their science forward. Of course, I know uh, applying for grants is a nasty process, and uh, I never met a scientist who was really happy about the process, but uh, of course, when the money comes in, it's great. And the good thing is in basic research, uh, scientists don't need billions. So they can do a lot with a few millions or a few hundred thousand euros. And this is also solved. What's really tricky and difficult in my opinion, and I, I still see a shortage, a shortage of uh, capital are the stages between. So, mm. what happens between basic research and, let's say, the proof of concept in human studies uh, is a really complex value chain with a lot of players in it. Um, and most of them lack capital because, on one hand, pharma doesn't really want to, to tap into uncertain technologies. Uh, of course, I mean, when you have uh, like CRISPR, yeah, when you have this uh, game changing technology. Um, that is obvious. Farmers is very willing to invest very early. But uh, a lot of inventions that are needed don't evolve out of game changing technology. So sometimes there is this uninteresting technology, then you have uh, by pure chance a finding and it makes it hot. So And in this area, also VCs don't really want to invest. They don't want to pick up technology, form a team and have to go through this uh, company formation process. Um, on the other hand, uh, business angels, what, what I see in the digital, uh, world, um, expect usually a return within one or two years. So drug development is not really an attractive model for business angels. And, uh, also the public side doesn't really want to invest there. And I believe if from this, uh, three billion from, from Biden and also if we take, uh, money from the European Union, if they would really start focusing, uh, in this complex let's uh, call it uh, tech transfer processes or value of death like like it's called in finance um, if they would allocate more money there i think also a lot of companies would be enabled to move far uh, faster and quicker Uh, how do you see that
1: i mean it's it's not only a function of money i would i would add here i mean as you rightfully pointed out there are different programs and that are available but it's it's really, if you are thinking big and drug development always has to be thought of as, as a really very big and international game, then you have to think very international. This shouldn't be thought as a local local play. I mean, you know all the numbers as, a, as an investor. I mean, typically these East Coast companies are started with 50 million plus and, and that's the kind of Play you have to compete with as a, also as an Austrian startup. So you have to think very carefully where mm. uh, you want to get your funds, funds from. And, and this is the kind of competition and, and play you're, you're into. So I'm not 100% sure whether kind of these public programs really can, can replace uh, private funding. It's, it's a fact that Europe is somehow different. Then the U.S. Here, the capital markets are not not as evolved as in the U.S. That's the reason why the Austrian drug developers, if they really become big, uh, look for a second or, or first listing at, at the U.S. capital market because simply there is much more more liquidity there and, and and more and and more, but maybe also more educated investor base. I mean, when I worked in this financing scheme Seen uh, uh, many cases, I saw that the, the kind of investors that really could judge what is a good investment in the life science area is a kind of scarce resource. I mean, it has been, it's much better now in, in the IT space, but in biotech, it's still, at least compared to the US, it's a kind of uh, limited, limited number of people that really are able to understand deeply what, what the drug drug discovery company is about and, and really to give a, a clear opinion whether it's worth to to be listed on a, on a capital market, on market or not.
0: Yeah, my friends asked me in 2006 if I'm nuts. <laughs> they said, you're uh, going to the life science industry. They pretty much uh, said the same what, what you are telling me now. Um, I think Europe is a great place to start a company, even in drug development, drug discovery, thanks to some, uh, public funding programs. And they make it really possible for scientists that don't have deep pockets. I mean, let's face it, there are mm-hmm. not millions of billionaires on the market <laughs> mm-hmm. in the world. So you can also do a lot with 100 to 200,000 euros, uh, given the fact that uh, public money flows into that area. When you look at the venture scene, I think it's a, it's a directional decision by the founders that they have to make. Do they want to play the European single technology play of venture capitalists? Um, there is not enough money in Europe, especially in, uh, in preclinical development and clinical development. So the reaction of the VCs in Europe that I mostly saw was that they want to have a single asset in a single company, develop it to clinics and then sell it as quickly as possible to the pharma industry. It's mm. a just approach. It's, um, I, I don't want to complain about it, but, uh, when I look on the United States, especially on, uh, key players also in Gene editing, um, they have more a visionary approach. Uh, like CRISPR mm-hmm. Therapeutics, for example, I mean, it was founded in Switzerland, but basically financed in the United States, in my opinion. And uh, it's, it's listed on the Nasdaq and uh, mm-hmm. also gets a lot of uh, US money. Uh, when founders uh, want to follow a visionary approach with a, a let's say, a portfolio approach in the company with running a pipeline of 10, 20 programs. I don't I don't see the, the right environment in Europe. I see the United States as uh, the right uh, cultural environment for such yeah. ambitions.
1: I agree, but uh, I mean, I wouldn't see it that, that negative. I mean, if we look at Biotech, and other very mm. prominent uh, German examples, I, may, I mean, there are people with deep pockets like, like Mr. Hoppe and, and the Ströngmann, Ströngmann guys. they they are around and they they significantly helped uh, these these German German unicorn companies to really develop very well. And also in Austria, we have in the meantime, we have good examples of of companies developing very well, like uh, Hookkeeper and others. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, one can always discuss whether, yeah, uh, they were not Hookkeeper, but others were sold too early. Yeah, that's... That's uh, and and did not get the full value of the of, of what what they would be able to 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 develop. But yeah, that's that's as it is. But when, when uh, and and in addition, yeah, uh, even if you are kind of company that started in Austria, you have the chance of getting listed in another market, be it UK, be it US, that has more liquidity and raise raise more funds there. I mean. We have several examples now where Vienna is kind of the R&D and, and hub of, of certain companies, even US companies, come mm-hmm. to, to Austria and, and create the, the R&D uh, department, R&D kind of yeah, part here in, in Austria, because we have so good a base, base of, of doing, doing R&D here and maybe do the commercial functions elsewhere. It could also be, be a model. In the end, it's always, and this was also mentioned last time, a function of, of experience of people that are around and available in, in our country and, and in, in Europe on a bigger scale.
0: Oh, that's true, and I see also the upside that uh, especially our business can can be easily run globally. You mentioned Okipa Pharma. I think Okipa Pharma started in Switzerland, then relocated to Vienna and uh, got listed on the NASDAQ and has now... Uh, subsidiaries in the united states so i think the headquarter in the united states and still the, the research is done here in austria also i think Nabriva is an example um mm. started in vienna and then got listed on the nasdaq uh biontech i uh, think financed by by Mick and uh, their investors who helped to evolve the company with significant investments partnered up with uh bill and melinda gates foundation who also brought money in and i think biontech is also listed on the nasdaq um so mm-hmm. it just must be clear that uh, at one point in time, when we're looking for 500 million, I still think that there yeah. are only very, very few investors here in Europe who uh, have the capabilities of supporting that. And I always wonder if when the European life science industry evolves, especially with uh, the successes of BioNTech or keeper Pharma, that hopefully also we will get more and more investors that are located in uh, in Europe and yeah. fuel the talent.
1: No, I definitely agree. I mean, all this corona corona phase definitely improved the case for good life science and biotech companies i think this has increased the investor confidence a lot and and made a very good case for for investors that biotech and life science companies uh, are a, are that are well-deserved uh good good investments and i mean we as we as a, a Biotech scene in Austria also, yeah, have some room for improvement. But yeah, with the now with the creation of the Biotech Austria Association, I really think that's a, a great step forward to also receive better public uh, uh, knowledge in the in the and the kind of yeah, what what the biotech uh, companies can do for the for the society as a whole. Mm-hmm.
0: And hopefully we have room for improvement. Otherwise, life would get boring easily. So (laughs) if there's nothing to do anymore. Um, Talking about investments and and pharmaceutical companies, what are the major players in your industry? What are the major players uh, in gene editing these days?
1: I mean, obviously we have, it was already mentioned several times. CRISPR Therapeutics definitely is one of the the large players and, and all the other Companies that are yeah mainly in the US for now like Intelia, mm-hmm. uh, but there are also some some companies in in Asia. But uh, yeah, and, and I mean many also big pharma companies have now taken licenses for for CRISPR technology from the different licensing consortia, and and probably follow their own approaches. So I think CRISPR technology in the meantime is so broad a technology that that it cannot be can be centered around uh, single companies. That's definitely too big a topic. I yeah. mean, we haven't discussed the IP landscape yet, which is still stands in the way a bit of a, a even better development, a more, more efficient development of the whole CRISPR technology and CRISPR drug development scene, because as we all know, this is still somehow unclear how this whole IP battle will, will be resolved in the end.
2: Yeah, that was, that, was uh, that. That was my comment as well. That initially there were sort of two, three big companies that were founded around the main patent estates, and the two competing ones here are the charpentier doudna um, patent that go back to the dis- sort of initial discovery that I described earlier, and then the reduction to practice in human cells, which was Fang Zhang from the from the Broad Institute, and and sort of companies were found around those main patent estates. Initially, you know, Editas uh, was founded um, around the Fang Zhang uh, portfolio, and then CRISPR Therapeutics and um, Intellia around the around the Doudna, uh, Charpentier um, portfolio. But it, it seems in the meantime, you know, a lot of other companies have come up, and this question of who owns CRISPR and and you need to have access to the foundational IP because the technology is so groundbreaking and so important. Has become almost, a, I wouldn't say a mute point, but you know, in the early days of CRISPR, people were like, okay, you know, you you need to be either this or that company because those are the two main patent estates, and if you don't have access, you don't even need to play in that market. But in the meantime, you know, there are 15 other companies, is my impression, and um, eventually the the whole IP situation will be sorted out because it's so big and so broad and there's so many applications that that. It it just cannot be in the way that um, two universities are battling over over that foundational IP.
0: I mean, I think as long as as, uh, the companies are developing or or doing research, the IP should not be the problem uh, until market entry. And I really wonder what happens when the first company has uh, developed a therapy that works um, and it cannot brought to patients because of IP protection. So, because uh, there is an unwillingness of uh, giving handing out licenses, it would be an interesting case uh, to see how that will be resolved. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah, I cannot, I cannot really see that happen. First, the question is always sort of what exactly was claimed in these patents. That Mm is right. Initially, for instance, um, yeah, I mean, let's not go into detail there. But but you know, the 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 precise formulation around the claims matters whether you're whether you're inside (laughs) or outside. So. Um, I think that there can potentially be workarounds. We've seen different nucleases other than Cas9 that are, that could potentially be used. So I think there will be several technical solutions to the to the um, to the to solve um, um, the problems that you're trying to solve. so I, I would be really surprised if that ultimately was in the way also I wonder if then you know University of uh, Vienna or Berkeley or or anyone. Would really like to see their name in the news stating that you know a new therapy for cystic fibrosis becomes available but you're blocking it because you because people don't have access to crispr i mean that is very negative pr and i'm really hoping that it doesn't go down that path because it would be um it, it would be sort of very tragic if that was the outcome right i can sort of see how you want to have. Certain stakes in the ground. I can also see how you want to have a share in the program if That's CRISPR normal. used to, to to sort of make make um, uh, or break the therapy. But um, but it, it it we hopefully we're not seeing or we're not facing a situation where a therapy gets shot down essentially because people don't have the proper licenses in place.
0: I I don't. I mean, maybe I'm too positive. I, but uh, as long as it's research, um, DIP is never a problem, in my opinion. Um, if there is really a groundbreaking uh, breakthrough that also coming from from the investment side, also when I look at uh, companies that uh, have not security license, uh, once you have the results, of course, I mean, out of courtesy, you should talk with the university who holds DIP and uh, agree on licensing terms that are also beneficial for the basic researchers to move that forward. But I think the The licensing terms are quite standard these days, and there are a lot of examples in the world, so that uh, also when a licensing agreement cannot be found, I think with with outside pressure from regulatory authorities, uh, that might also be resolved beneficial for both parties. It might not be uh, the lottery win, but uh, Mm. I think it can be resolved, and I don't see a reason why universities should not um, give a license on commercial terms, uh, but they should... it would make the money. Am
1: I too positive? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think in this getting a therapeutic license for CRISPR is, is a very complicated process. So it's on the one side the universities and, and the mm. people involved have given this to certain specialized companies that commercialize this, this IP. On the other side, I think you mentioned some uh, mandatory licenses which are in certain patent laws but we have this discussion with Corona uh, vaccinations as well. And and we have seen the discussions there. I mean, mandatory licenses, that's really this goes deep into the heart of our uh, kind of uh, commercial system and the biotech system. So and and I don't think there will be an, an easy solution to that because this really would significantly impact the whole business model of biotech companies. Uh, in a in a sense that yeah they cannot rely on the proper patent protection they absolutely need for commercializing their products they have, have discovered i mean the main problem we have these days is that it's not even clear to whom the the knowledge belongs because we have this interference process going on we have several uh several uh, rulings going on at the EPO uh European patent office uh, so this will, unless there is a, a kind of uh, solution and via uh, negotiation, if it's decided by court, this I would assume this will take several years and this, this is really resolved, and this will also lead to a, a situation where investors and companies will shy away from this unclear situation and will not develop. Uh, certain therapeutics where the, the licensing situation is unclear. Because if I'm an investor, I wouldn't invest in a case where, where it's unsure whether I can, can commercialize uh, that so technology. That, I think that's a question worth
0: debating. Um, when I think uh, about the origins of patent laws, um, they all evolved in a time where the internet did not exist, where traveling was really difficult and challenging. Um, and also multinational collaborations were not, uh, in the day to day business. It was just, I think 1800, 1700, 1600. So they have a very, very long history. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And now we live in a connected world where it's really possible also with, with more and more people on the planet, where it's really possible to, to connect huge teams, uh, on one top over one topic and let them work to solve the same problem so and still we have these negotiation processes that just take a lot of time and uh coming basically are coming from a different society from a different background and when i think um also from the investment side when i think uh, just 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 start working to just move the therapy forward i mean nine out of ten or 99 out of hundred uh, approaches won't work anyways so uh should people start uh, negotiating a license for a patent that probably is off patent uh, before they can bring, even bring something on the market uh, early on or should they just postpone the process and say, okay, let's find out first if it works. And if it works, then let's initiate the process and sometimes mm-hmm. get also hopefully help in future that maybe there is an arbitrage authority that can help, uh, just shorten the timeline for the negotiation, not in, um, let's say, uh, denying um, uh, commercial benefits to one party, but just to streamline the process and make it move quicker. I think this would
1: be very helpful. I mean, I'm I'm not talking about the kind of relatively cheap processes up to going into clinical phases. I was Mm -hmm. really talking about clinical studies that, that cost several hundred millions yeah. and, and more. And I think taking this huge commercial risk of entering such studies without having a clear situation on on the whether an approval would be possible in the end with a proper license situation. Yeah, I doubt that this risk can be taken easily. The quote, the because question. I think also of the the licensing partner. If he knows that you absolutely need his license, he will have a very strong leverage of, of uh, of setting the bar for for a proper license very high.
0: I mean it, it it's not in our industry but I think uh the developer of Fortnite is battling uh, over the access on 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 Apple's uh, App Store which is basically a monopoly and patents create monopolies um I'm not aware of a case that really pushed it so far that they just developed something up to the end of phase 3 invested uh, billions of dollars without sorting out the licensing issues beforehand but the question would really be what would happen then I mean you have a therapy in the pipeline that works. Um, mm-hmm. And then the owner of the patent just blocks it and says, no, <laughs> no, I don't allow it. it. would be really interesting to, to, to have a debate over that. Uh, I mean, I mean to there's, it up.
1: <laughs> there's a huge debate in the US anyway, going on about this, this patents uh, in the, in the CRISPR space, whether they belong to a bigger extent to the public, because obviously a lot of the research that led to this breakthrough uh, discoveries was financed by public funds. And and in the end, by the public, and and whether the the huge profits then should remain with the with the large university funds is definitely a, a big question, and and should be should be considered carefully, yeah, because this is is somehow unequal distribution of profits. Yeah.
0: Thomas Stillman, i I really like having conversations, so we can go on uh, also for another three hours, and no. I, <laughs> I will never run out of ideas.
2: <laughs> don't don't threaten anyone
1: here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh but I think uh, you have two companies to run and uh so I would r- suggest to wrap up our discussion and I would like to ask uh, you two one final question. You both have experience in the industry, you founded several companies and uh, there are so many people out there these days who think about uh going down the same routes that you did, um, but it's the first time. So let's just assume somewhere at the conference, hopefully in future, again, in person, uh, you pump into a bunch of entrepreneurs um, from different age groups in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s who come up with it and um, tell you, look, I'm so impressed by what you achieved. I want to... To do something similar. I have an idea. Uh can you please give me one advice? What would that most important advice to those people be
2: from you? That's a tough one, Thomas. I leave you the first. Yeah,
1: one. yeah. <laughs> well, for, me, for me, it's it's relatively clear. I think the the best advice would be to to really form a proper team. To team up with people whom you can trust and who bring in Different competencies, different networks, and if you have built a great team of two or three people, then then that's already one of the best bases you can have for forming a, a, a successful and, and sustainable sustainable company.
2: Yeah, I don't. I I think it's a very tough question. Um, put me a bit on the spot, <laughs> but. I don't know I would I would probably advise to really you know first try to try to be very specific about what you want to do and try to really focus on a very small thing but then with this very small thing try to try to develop an idea that you really think has an impact so this whole this whole concept of focus I think is one that we always try to emphasize that we're trying to do one thing really really well as opposed to Working at a lot of uh, disconnected or loosely connected um, things, but I'm not sure I find that a very good piece of advice. So I'm, uh, it w- would have to be a longer conversation for it to be meaningful. I
0: think we can make another podcast on that, but um, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, You you nailed it very very well. Focus is the most important thing for um, success of any company. And later on, when you succeed in one field, you can then, of course, diversify and uh, grow bigger like Amazon. But Amazon initially, uh, I think it's a company everybody knows. They did just one thing, selling books over the internet. That's it. And both advices, uh, form a team and uh, focus initially on one idea, become the best in that field, uh, is what... Made Jeff Bezos the richest person in the world, ultimately after twenty seven years. <laughs> <laughs> so sound advice from you too Thank you very much for your time and these nice conversations. Uh, I think it helped a lot for non scientists to understand better what gene editing is, what the power of CRISPR is. What uh, the risks and opportunities are, and also hopefully we contributed a bit uh, to the awareness of the life science industry, and hopefully also one of the other politician is uh, listening to that and helps uh, moving forward the regulations around patent laws and help um, also with bringing the right laws in place that our community here in Europe can evolve better. Thank you very much for your time and have a great day.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Christian. Thanks a lot for organizing that. Have a nice day. Thank you.
0: It was a great day. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. (laughs)